So last year, I read a book, one of those rare books that actually shifts the way you think about things. Uh, it changes your perspective. It gives you more depth to ideas you might have already had and also gives you new ideas. And the book was called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. I know I've talked about it uh, half a dozen times on the show. Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. The author is Tom Holland. He's the author of a lot of books on ancient and early medieval history. Uh, and he has a podcast called The Rest is History. Uh, I'm really happy that Tom is with us today. Are you there? I am. There you are. Very much for having me. And thanks well, for your very kind words. No, no. It, it, really, it really made a big difference. And uh, as I said, I know, I know you did my son show before mine. You know, and I, I don't hold that against you. That's, that's all right. <laughs> but I know you did The Young Heretic. Right. And uh, he and I have discussed this book endlessly. It is a remarkable book. Uh, I'd like to begin just by asking you personally, what, what drew you to this subject? Well, so the thesis of the book basically is that um, we in the West... Uh, Europe and America, we're, we're like goldfish swimming in Christian waters, and and we take it, we take Christianity and its inheritance so completely for granted that many of us, um, particularly those who who may feel that they've emancipated themselves from Christianity as a kind of superstition, um, don't realise the degree to which what we assume is just kind of human nature or the way that society is just organised or anything that actually it's incredibly culturally contingent and that, and that it, it derives from a very, very kind of specific intellectual, spiritual tradition that has utterly shaped us. Uh, and, and this is a conclusion that I was surprised to find myself coming to because um, I, I, I'd always kind of, to be honest, much preferred the classical world. And I'd viewed the coming of Christianity kind of like, uh, you know, wintry drizzle descending <laughs> and replacing the clear blue. You know, I've kind of imagined the classical world as gleaming temples and blue skies. And then the coming of Christianity as, as rain and, and drizzle and everyone, you know, the, the clear white togas going and everyone starting to wear sackcloth and ashes. So it's like the kind of depressing development. But essentially, it was the experience of writing about the classical world, the Greeks, the Romans, that just kept bringing home to me how utterly alien, actually, they were. Uh, and it was really trying to live inside their heads, you know, for the process of, of time that I was spending writing about these books, writing these books, that kind of made me think, well, these, these guys are, are, are far more alien than I had properly appreciated. And so what is it that changed? What, what is it that... Um, explains the chasm of cultural difference between me and, say, Julius Caesar or Leonidas or people like that. Uh, and I kind of came to the conclusion that it was Christianity, that Christianity had changed it. So b before we get into the details of that, which I would like to talk about, but before we do that, I, I lived in England for many years, and it's, it's a country where people do show up in, in church for events, for marriages, for weddings, and, and things like that. But there's a, a, a new kind of distance. I mean, Douglas Murray has written about this. It's becoming, uh, if, if it's not already, it's becoming a much more secular country than, for instance, this country is. So you make that discovery. Does that have a personal effect on your life? Well, I, I, was, I was raised um, in the Church of England. My mother is um, a very devout member of the Church of England. I, I love her. Um, so I've never had a kind of, um, you know, a Byronic... Um, rejection of, of Christianity. I, I, I've always kind of quite admired it. I just thought it was rather boring. Um, and, and to be honest, I think that that's probably the attitude of, of, of lots of people mm. um, 
in Britain is that it's just faintly boring. I mean, I'm aware that it's far more um, a live kind of cultural issue in the United States. But in a way, I think that um, one of the reasons why Christianity, people feel that they no longer need Christianity is, is exactly that, precisely that it's what um, it's, its core doctrines, its core assumptions have been so completely internalized mm. that in a mm. sense, we no longer need the church. Um, I mean, and in a way, that was kind of brought home for me very powerfully during the pandemic when people took for granted um, that sacrifices should be made. I mean, often very considerable sacrifices to help the sick, particularly to, to help those who were most vulnerable, the elderly, um, those who were, who, who were medically vulnerable. Never crossed anybody's mind not to do that. And I think that that's, that's a legacy of... Um, a kind of sense of, of, of concern for, for the weak that is not natural. I mean, it's not a given. Uh, it is something that, that emerges from a very distinct cultural context. And I think that that, that cultural context is the, the kind of the Christian command that you should care for those who, those who suffer. And, and, you know, there was a terrible process of, you know, a terrible cycle of plagues, uh, of pandemics throughout the third century AD. Um, and in a sense, that was the making of Christianity, because suddenly people could see that, um, you know, even people who weren't Christians, that there were people who were willing to tend them, willing to care for them in a way that simply hadn't been done before. Uh, and you could obviously completely understand the appeal of that. And that was couched in theological terms. But now, with certainly on this side of the Atlantic, you, you have socialised healthcare systems. Um, the state, in a sense, has taken over the responsibilities for healthcare from the churches. So, in a sense, the churches are no longer needed. Mm. You, you know, one of the things you write about at, at length is the attitude towards sexuality, but most importantly, the attitude toward women that has been transformed by Christianity. And this is something that I think we very much take for granted in the West, but it wasn't, it wasn't like this before uh, Christ. The, the way women are thought of now is not the way they were thought of before. Well, the image of, of Christianity is, um, uh, among its critics, is that it's a, a patriarchal system with a kind of long-bearded sky daddy wagging his finger um, and repressing women. Um, and in a sense, that's another example of the way in which Christianity has become a victim of its own success, hmm. because... The, the, the patriarchal traditions in Christianity, which certainly exist, are judged by standards, I would say, that are themselves Christian. Um, and the foundational ideas um, that govern uh, Christian attitudes towards sex and towards gender are kind of rooted in the idea that men and women are, are, are created equally in the image of God, uh, which you get in Genesis. Uh, and then it's ref it, it gets a further refinement um, with the New Testament, and particularly Paul, who says that in Christ there is no man or woman. Um, but what you get also get in Paul is a kind of nervousness at the, the radical implications of that, the idea that, that men and women may, may ultimately be indistinguishable in terms of their status. And there's a kind of constant tension in Paul's letters between that radicalism and a kind of feeling, well, actually, I think that, that men should have a kind of responsibility for women and so on. But having said that, um, this understanding that, that every human being, female as well as male, is, is created equally in the image of God, um, is, is so foundational to Paul's understanding of, of how people should relate to each other. 
But he argues essentially that the only real way that, that a man and a woman can have a sexual relationship is if they map that relationship on the relationship between Christ and his church. So again, you have that kind of idea that Christ is the head of the church. So there is that kind of idea of, 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 of the man as the head of the relationship. But in the context of the age, this is unbelievably transformative. And I, I, I think you could almost say kind of progressive, if you want to put it in those terms, because the context of the world in which Paul is framing these doctrines, so Corinth, Roman colony, um, uh, Rome itself, um, this is a society in which the binary is not as it is for us, uh, men and women. Um, the two the two sexes it's about do you have power or do you not mm. and the person who has power is the male citizen the male roman citizen and he has an absolute authority over uh, everybody in his household um, and essentially he has a license to use those who are his subordinates any way that he likes absolutely any way i mean he, he can rape them any way that he wants um, and and that is a given so when paul is writing to Householders in Corinth or Rome, and saying that you have to, you know, you, the, the Roman male citizen, in your relationship with with women, you can only have one wife. You can only have a wife. That's the only person that you can sleep with, and that relationship has to be for life because that is how Christ is with his church. You know, Christ is not going around um, sexually assaulting the page boy or the scullery maid or whatever. You have to be strictly monogamous, as Christ is monogamous with his church. And, and this sets in train an absolutely kind of radical recalibration of the way that people understand sexuality. Mm. And it's a long, long convulsive process because essentially it, it involves training men to, ex to, to rein in their sexual instincts uh, and to basically to, to treat a woman's body as though that body is the church. Um, and it's that idea that a woman's body, or indeed a man's body, and you know, all human bodies are sacrosanct, that we take so for granted now, and yet it, it's not a given at all. And this was really brought home to me. I was writing the book, and the Harvey Weinstein affair broke, uh, and I'd been writing a lot about how Christian morality had changed Roman sexual standards. And of course, to a Roman householder, what Harvey Weinstein did was absolutely natural. Uh, I mean, mm. of course, why, why wouldn't he um, sexually abuse his subordinates? I mean, that's why not? I mean, everybody does that. In fact, you're a bit odd if you don't do that. Um, and I thought that what was striking about the reaction to that wasn't just that, that women got together and, and set in train the Me Too movement, but that so many men accepted the justice of, of what they were saying. And that reflected the fact that this kind of cultural weathering is, has been around for a very, very long time. The, the complexity of it is, of course, that it's become snarled up with, I think, particularly since the 60s, with a, a sense that Christianity is repressive, uptight, um, that, you know, St. Paul is a, was, was a kind of blue meanie turning up and ruining the pepper land of ancient Rome. But it wasn't like that at all. And the measure of that, I think, the, the complexity of our present day cultural attitude towards Christianity is that when the women's marches, you know, that happened in, in the United States just after Trump had been elected, they went through um, all the major states in the US. And one of the most popular costumes that women wore on those marches were the red robes and the, the white bonnets of handmaids from the um, 
the, the, the dramatization of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale. And that was written as a parody of Puritanism, of New England Puritanism. Um, but the paradox was that the women on those demonstrations effectively were demanding that men behave like Puritans. In other words, that they show sexual continence and that they, res- you know, they, they respect the bodily integrity of women, that they don't just kind of harass them, jump them. Uh, great them, molest them as as people back in Romanate. You know, th- this brings me back to what you were saying before. We're talking about the book Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world by Tom Holland. You said before that Christianity was a victim of its own success and that it's essentially its values have disappeared into our ordinary consciousness and into our lives so that we don't even see where they come from. There was a tragic comic moment when the State Department in America complained that the, the Taliban was forming a government that wasn't diverse enough, uh, as if the Taliban would suddenly slap its head and say, oh, gee, you know, we, we forgot that diversity uh, is one of our values, when obviously it's not one of their values. You mentioned uh, after 9-11, George W. Bush saying Islam is a religion of, of peace, which aside from being meaningless in and of itself is also simply not true. It does not emphasize peace and love the way Christianity does. Is the fact that that it's disappeared, does that leave us kind of exposed to losing the values that um, that were given to us? In other words, are they now permanent or do they stand on this rock? Well, this is the great question. And it was famously posed by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, mm-hmm. who said, God right. is dead, but right. we haven't, you know, people, don't, people haven't kind of woken up. Right. And Nietzsche's further argument was that you can't have Christian values without Christian belief. Um, and he, he was addressing um, socialists, liberals, communists, um, basically anyone who was kind of parasitic on, on, on the fundamentals of Christian teaching and saying that in the long run, um, you know, your, your, your convictions say that the last shall be first and the first shall be last or that um, all human beings have an inherent dignity, that these are unsustainable without the theology, without the sense of mystery, that gave them birth. And he further predicted that there would be a, a, a terrible age of convulsion when the implications of that were, were thought through and put into practice. And of course, what we know that Nietzsche didn't was what form that terrible convulsion would take. And uh, basically, it was, it was fascism. Uh, fascism was a conscious attempt to fuse a pre-Christian world in which the strong and the mighty, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the best tradition of Achilles or Julius Caesar, have the power and a kind of modernity in which there's no place for kind of squeamish compassion for the weak or, you know, which Nietzsche saw as kind of enfeebling, slave morality. Um, and fascism, particularly in, in, in its Nazi form, was the most radical subversion of Christian assumptions since the time of Constantine, far more radical than the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, both of which absolutely thought that uh, the last should be first and the first should be last, that, that at the end of days, you know, sheep and goat will be divided up, that a new Jerusalem will descend to the earth. It was just that this had been secularized, but the, the Christian impulse for these teachings was absolutely clear. And the reason that both the French and the Russian revolutionaries targeted the church was for deeply Christian reasons. In other words, that the church was identified with oppression and uh, and well, you know, that the church had become first and therefore it had to become last. Nazism was far more comprehensive in its rejection of Christianity because it rejected the fundamental doctrines. The, the, the two key ones, I guess, being the idea that the strong 
have a, a, a kind of debt to the weak. Christ is crucified. Um, the cross becomes an emblem of the power of the weak over the strong, whereas previously for the Romans it had been an emblem of the power of the strong over the weak. The Nazis utterly rejected that. They were all in favour of strength, uh, and they, they regarded the weak as, as people who had to be disposed of. And, of course, um, the Nazis rejected the idea that there was a fundamental human dignity and equality. And you know, Paul had said that there's no man or woman. He also said there is no Jew or Greek. The Nazis absolutely thought there were Jews and Greeks. And the shock and the horror of that, when it, when it, it kind of percolated out and when the, when the understanding of what it had done with, with news and kind of Holocaust kind of entering public um, understanding really in the 60s, that oddly is, but I think, I mean, it may seem counterintuitively, but I think it's not entirely strange. That is when Christianity in Europe, institutional Christianity started to, to, to really go into decline. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that the Nazis provide us in the West and I would include the United States in this, with a kind of new mythology mm. that is actually far more dramatic, far more um, vivid, and far more, it seems to many people, rooted in reality than the traditional Christian mythology. So it's a mythology in which Hitler is the devil, in which um, Auschwitz is hell, in which temptation consists of being drawn to the doctrines that the Nazis have had upheld, and that... Um, Virtue is to be defined as standing proof against Nazism. But I think that that, that, um, that mythology and the power that it has for us is itself still rooted in Christian assumptions because we condemn the Nazis as evil because we're judging them by Christian standards. But the effect of that is that whereas maybe before um, Hitler, we would say, you know, what would Jesus do and do it? Now, increasingly, we say, what would Hitler do? And we do the opposite. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now the, 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 now, the question is, um, is, is that sufficient to maintain Christian ideals and values and teachings without Christianity? And I think I'm not a prophet. I don't know what the answer to that is. My, my, yeah. my, my hunch is, based on, on um, the past few years, is that the hold of Christian theology on, on the imagination of the West, and particularly perhaps on Americans, is as strong as it's ever been. But that although um, those values are kind of rooted in Christianity, they're no longer anchored to them. And so they're starting to drift off in all kinds of strange ways. And we're getting all kinds of bizarre mutant strains of Christianity. Christian yeah. chiefly because because people don't recognize that they're Christian anymore. I, I, I've only got a, a minute or two left. I, I have to ask you this, though. I, I've, I've talked to so many people and read so many people. Douglas Murray comes to mind. Marcello Pera, the Italian uh, philosopher who says we must call ourselves Christians or else our freedoms will fall apart. Uh, Douglas Murray, who says, you know, we can't invent a new uh, form of morality, so we really have to have some uh, kind of relationship with Christianity. But they can't believe themselves. Um, they, they cannot bring themselves to have faith. Do you have that problem? Well, I, I, I was, I, I'm a liberal who's lost his faith. Um, I, I wrote Dominion in part because um, I, I wanted to stress test my fundamental values uh, and to find out where they come from. And essentially, I'd always kind of vaguely assumed they came from the Enlightenment. Uh, and the discovery that they didn't, um, and that uh, ultimately they come, they, they're, they're deeply theological, they're rooted in a kind of sense of mystery, was an eye-opener for me. 
Um, and I feel, let's say, that I'm on uh, on a journey because I, I don't want to abandon my belief in those. So I, I because a kind of abyss awaits. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, I think if you, you know, I don't want to abandon my belief in that. And I slightly feel that I might as well hang for a for a sheep as a lamb. So <laughs> th- th- there's one side of me that's saying this is all nonsense. Uh, there is no human dignity. There are no human rights. We're all just animals. We're all just kind of bundles of atoms. Uh, who cares? We can do anything we like. Um, and the other half is saying, no, of course you believe. Um, you know, these are so much a part of you. Um, and I, there are times where I can believe that. And there are times where I can't. And my, my skepticism and my belief are in a constant sense of dialogue. And that may sound like a kind of weasel question. But I think that um, I'm, I'm not unusual in that. I, th- I think that, in a sense, our entire society, whether it recognises it or not, is in a process of discussing this, whether our values are sufficiently believable that we can continue to believe in them. Or not. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I like to think that we can. Yeah. Uh, but, but I was, you know, I, I was going to say I've been there, so I'm not, uh, not surprised at all. I've, I've <laughs> got to stop you there. Absolutely terrific uh, conversation. I'm so happy you came on. The book is Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by Tom Holland. Tom, I hope you'll come back again. We can talk some more. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot. <laughs>